0: Welcome to the Work Revolution Podcast, where we believe, in fact, we know, there's a better way to work and live. And we are here to challenge the status quo of obsolete workplace
1: practices and ideas about leadership. I'm Lisa. And I'm Deborah. Along with you, our listeners, we're evolving our thinking about what it means to belong, innovate, and create change at work. Join us as we dispel the myths of meritocracy, hierarchy, and other bullshit practices that get in the way of all of us harnessing our full potential to make a better world. Welcome back to our listeners. This is Deborah here with Lisa once again. And for today's episode, we are talking about bias. And what we have for you is a really great interview with Jessica Nordell, who is an American writer and science journalist. She is published in many, many places, including the New York Times, The Guardian, Washington Post, The Atlantic, and many other places. And she also has a new book out, which is primarily what we're talking about today called The End of Bias, A Beginning, which has been shortlisted for the 2021 Royal Society Science Book Prize. And according to The Guardian, is a groundbreaking analysis of bias and how to fix it. A really important topic in not just for workplaces, it's a really important topic for workplaces, but also just our world in general, I would say. Absolutely. And maybe possibly
0: intergalactically, who knows bias reaches beyond the thin little atmosphere around this planet. Yeah. As you know, Deborah, I saw the piece about her work in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago. And what really struck me is when she was looking to study bias that she writes in the book to quantify the cumulative impact of the kind of bias, she realized that she had to create the data on her own because there just have not been a lot of real world longitudinal studies that look at people over a period of time and the impact of bias. And this piece in the New York Times showed in this kind of really interesting animation, what happens for women over the arc of their careers when just a 3% difference in how they're rated in performance reviews, the opportunities that are afforded to them impacts their careers over time. And many things are fascinating about this, but the fact that we now have data that shows that bias is just not in our heads, that there actually are forces at work. In work, and as you say, outside of work, that impact how women live their lives and how women experience their careers. So I'm really glad that you, uh, when you reached out to
1: her after I shared the article with you, that you were able to have this conversation. Yeah, I was delighted that she agreed to do it. And the conversation with Jessica and the book has really showed me that there is so much data and science that shows we do have bias. But to your point, the systemic nature of it has remained a little bit of a mystery in terms of how do we show how this affects people over a period of time and in workplaces in particular. So there's definitely lots to learn and lots to uncover. So let's hear this interview with Jessica, and then you and I can talk some more about it. Hello,
2: Jessica. Welcome to the Work Revolution podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me.
1: I'm so glad you're here. I just finished your book and I'm thrilled that you wrote it. I'm hopeful. I'm depressed. It's invoked a lot of different emotions and reactions in me, but I think this is just such important work at this time in our history to grow an understanding around bias and how that's impacting everyone and in all walks of our life, you know? And one of the things that was really interesting that you illustrated so wonderfully is how, as human beings, we all experience bias. Much of it we are unaware of and that it can be about anything. It can be about age, gender, sexuality, ethnicity, race, socioeconomic status. It can be about anything. And and in fact, one of the most chilling lines in the book to me is where you said something about how we will all eventually Experience the discrimination and the disrespect that awaits the elderly. And I just thought, oh, that's a sad thought, isn't it?
2: If we're lucky, I mean, if we're lucky, the alternative is to not age, which aging is definitely better than the alternative.
1: So, exactly. God willing, it's a one way street, as they say, right? But at the same time, it was a really eye opening thought. And I certainly have seen people I've worked with experience that in job search and in their career. And that will be a whole topic for another day on ages. But I thought what we could get us started, there's so much research in the book around, yes, there is bias and how it's impacting us. So I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, because to your point, that's all well-researched and we want to move forward into other things like solutions. But maybe you could just kind of give us a sense of the landscape around where the research is in terms of the existence of unconscious bias, if you would use that word. I know there's other words and the reasons for it.
2: I don't think it's a stretch to say that bias affects all of us all the time and across so many different aspects of social identity, as you mentioned, gender, race, ethnicity, ability or disability, age, religion. And there is a copious research that shows the presence of this kind of discrimination. I think there's an ongoing kind of debate about unconscious versus conscious bias and how much of this is really unconscious and how much people are really oblivious to what they're doing and how much is conscious and intentional. I sort of have come to a place of calling it unexamined bias, because that sort of acknowledges the presence of bias and discrimination without necessarily trying to identify precisely whether it's conscious or unconscious. Because I think sometimes it's a combination and sometimes people aren't even, they might be aware to sort of varying degrees. But yeah, I mean, it's in healthcare, it's in Education. In the US, we see Black students being penalized more for the same infractions as white students, for instance. In healthcare, we see women's symptoms being taken less seriously. We see less attention to pain for Black and Latino patients as compared to white patients. That's true even for children. We see it in policing, obviously. We see it in the workplace where women and marginalized groups face myriad kinds of biases from not having their work valued equally to being passed over for high visibility assignments to being penalized for expressing personality traits that are considered unacceptable for their group. I mean, it really sort of percolates into every aspect of life, which can feel, you know, as you mentioned, it can feel a bit daunting and a bit depressing. But the good news is that this is it's something that we can really work on and we can improve it's a human created problem. And so we can create human solutions for the problem, which was the focus of my research was, as you point out, really, how do we move on and move past this problem and really try to tackle it in a meaningful way?
1: Right. And so when you talked about just now, when an individual is identified with a certain group, there can be stereotypes related to that group that can impact the way that they're treated, for example. But also when people deviate from the stereotypes of that group, they can be further discriminated against. That was very interesting in the research that when you fit a
2: stereotype, it seems like people are generally more accepting. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, there's sort of this distinction between descriptive and prescriptive stereotypes, descriptive being stereotypes that describe a group, prescriptive being stereotypes that insist on the way a group acts. And there's really interesting research about how the brain responds when people deviate from a stereotype, because a stereotype is really an expectation for how someone is going to behave. And there's research, for instance, that found that when people deviated from expected stereotypes, the response was one of Feeling sort of cardiovascular distress on the part of the person who was expecting the stereotype. There's something very reassuring about someone fitting into our expected stereotypes and something a bit disturbing and distressing about someone not fitting into the stereotype at an emotional level.
1: Well, I kind of get that because I'm not a neuroscientist by any stretch, that's for sure. But the, the bit I do know about our brains is it does like to accurately predict the future in order to keep us safe. It likes certainty and predictability. And so when anything in our environment, I think our brain immediately goes into this, oh, potential danger, right? And so these are natural human reactions. And I'm hoping that an understanding of that Lessons defensiveness around because I think one of the stumbling blocks really is just resistance to the idea that I could be biased, especially for someone who's part of a group that is not marginalized. There is a lot of defensiveness that we see around that. But the more we can just say this is the human experience, hopefully, and then recognizing and hopefully then leaning into what are some possible solutions. I'd love for you to tell our listeners, the story of Ben Barris. That was really
2: interesting. Yeah. Ben Barris is an amazing person. Unfortunately, passed away a few years ago. He was a neurobiologist at Stanford who transitioned, underwent a gender transition in his forties. And leading up to the transition had been really uncertain about how the scientific community would respond to him and what he found was that fortunately for him he was in an environment that was very accepting first of all of the fact that he had transitioned that's not true universally by it's important to say that many trans people face enormous amounts of discrimination and prejudice what he experienced was that people who did not know he was transgender who just met him as Ben treated him with more respect he found that he was given more deference in meetings. People didn't interrupt him as much. People kind of took him at his word. They agreed with him more. So in general, he just found that his entire experience was kind of elevated now that he was you know, presenting to the world as a middle-aged white male scientist. And what was interesting about when I was talking to him was that he hadn't actually detected a lot of sexism in the first part of his career. It wasn't like he was sort of seeing sexism everywhere and being really distraught over it. He really didn't detect that much sexism until he had the opportunity to experience life without it. And at that point, all of these other experiences, which he had just not noticed, suddenly became kind of illuminated to him as not always overt, but kind of ever-present devaluing of his ideas and experience. So I think his story is so amazing because he illuminates the fact that gender bias is often experienced in ways that women don't even necessarily identify because they don't have anything to compare it to. He did. He had kind of a before and after experience and was able to really see what can be often invisible.
1: That's really interesting. You had a number of stories from the transgender community around this. So his experience isn't completely unique. And there was another person who you talked about, Philip Guo, who, not transgender, but experienced sort of the more beneficial side of bias as well. Tell us a little bit about his situation.
2: Yeah, he was interesting. You know, I came across his story because he wrote about it quite a bit. He said, I was a beneficiary of gender bias in my favor or potentially other kinds of bias. He was someone who went into the field of computer science, not knowing very much about the field. And as a student, he found himself being kind of given Tasks in internships and research positions that he really didn't feel like he was qualified for, but other people assumed that he knew what he was doing. They assumed that he was qualified. And, you know, at times he said he would be quiet because someone would ask him a question and he didn't know the answer, but other people would just assume that he understood what was going on. And so he, what Philip expressed was that he saw himself being given a lot of opportunities that some of his classmates female classmates, for instance, were not given. He had, I don't think I actually included this in the book, but he shared that he had a female classmate who also was in computer science and also was in an internship, but she was given sort of mundane administrative tasks as part of her work. And so, yeah, so his experience was that he was seen as someone because of his background, that he was seen as someone who, had some technical competence and was given the benefit of the doubt. And over time, he was given a lot of opportunities and did develop technical competence and did develop competence and confidence in his technical skill. But I think it's important to say here that while Philip Guo, he was a Chinese-American student at the time, might have benefited in some ways from stereotypes around Asian-Americans and technical aptitude. It's important to note that model minority stereotypes also have a lot of negative consequences and they overlook things like the fact that people of Asian origin are subject to high rates of poverty, harassment, racism, and myriad other harms. So these things aren't necessarily simple, but I think many of these biases have kind of multiple dimensions that we have to keep in mind. All the time to understand how they work. Yeah, it
1: is really complex. And I think that's one thing that I really got out of the book too, is that we're in a system that's complex. We're always interacting with another person, which makes the dynamic complex. So there is a lot of layers to this. But what I think is interesting is that stereotypes, prejudices can benefit some groups. And are doing harm to others and that those things are both happening simultaneously. So I feel like it's widening the gap to some degree when you think how if you're a six foot plus tall white man in the United States, then you're just so much luckier seemingly than the rest of the population, you had this great stat. We're going to get to workplaces in a bit, but you had this great stat at one point, which I've heard similar things before, but I hadn't heard it with the height part as well, that 50% of the top 10 Fortune 500 company CEOs are white men over six feet, yet only just like under 5% of the U.S. population meets those criteria.
2: Right. Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, what are the chances really? Right. <laughs> yeah. Something's going on. Yes. Something interesting and complicated is going on. So, let's talk a bit about workplaces in particular and how bias is, is impacting women. We're going to focus a little bit on women specifically because you did do some really interesting, specific gender bias research. But you talked a lot about people of color, LGBTQ, a lot of different angles have been investigated in this book. So I want to talk about the research specifically on the gender bias. But before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about the legal cases that you talked about in the U.S. You talked about two specifically, a woman named Ellen Powell, who worked in the financial services sector. And venture capitalists, yes. And then also the Walmart class action lawsuit. Let's talk a little bit about those because I think that this brought to light for me, oh yeah, we're going to need the courts if there's going to be significant change. The courts and the legal system have a role to play in that. And so this, this really highlighted that for me. So let's just talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, you know, it was really interesting. I was fascinated by the Ellen Powell case from the very beginning. She was a junior partner at a venture capital firm in Silicon Valley, and she was fired. And she charged that gender discrimination had kept her from advancing and had ultimately led to her firing. She also experienced retaliation. The firm had ignored sexual harassment. What I was really interested in was the kinds of less overt kind of everyday acts of discrimination that she was subject to. So for instance, she was excluded from a networking dinner with Al Gore because women quote unquote killed the buzz, apparently was the word. She was criticized for being overly opinionated, but she was also criticized for needing to speak up more she was undervalued. She maintained that her work wasn't valued as much. And what was interesting to me was that when the jury ultimately decided that gender discrimination was not a key factor in her firing. And what was interesting was that they didn't really find a smoking gun. Like there wasn't a moment where someone said, we're not going to promote Ellen Powell because she's a woman. That never happens at work, you know, but that's what the legal system is set up to look for. So what I was curious about was, what is the true impact of these small, fleeting, everyday kinds of bias that women and so many other marginalized groups experience? It's not generally someone coming in with, you know, an egregious, offensive statement like, You're a woman and you're not competent, you know, and then no vaginas shall hold the C suite. (laughs) Like nobody's saying that overtly, right? (laughs) Right. No one's saying that. And I don't know if people are even consciously necessarily believing that, but that's the effect of these everyday acts, like excluding someone from a meeting or devaluing their work. And so Ellen Powell's case, I think, was a really great example of how our legal system isn't really adequate to the task of taking into account how bias really plays out in the workplace, which is subtle, frequent, long-term, but not necessarily attributable to one bad actor. And that was really highlighted in this Walmart case, too. Yeah. Right? So the Walmart case was on behalf of, let me confirm, 1.6 million female Walmart employees. And they maintained that women were denied promotions, paid less than men, steered to low-wage positions. And the proof was that there were massive disparities in men and women's pay and management positions in the company. What Antonin Scalia, Chief Justice Antonin Scalia said, was that The company could never reach those kinds of disparities without some kind of coordinated effect, without some kind of coordinated effort on the part of managers to explicitly discriminate against women. And I mean, he also said this quote, which I find quite hilarious, which is most managers in any corporation and surely most managers in a corporation that forbids sex discrimination would select sex-neutral performance-based criteria for hiring and promotion that produce no actionable disparity at all. Which any of us who have had a job know that managers do not always (laughs) choose performance-based criteria to make decisions. So yeah, so I mean, this was another case that I found really interesting because it seemed to be yet another example of the inability of our legal system to really grapple with the way bias plays out every day for so many groups.
1: What's going to change that? Like, do we need better science then to show, to be able to go in and present evidence of how systemic bias actually works? Is that what's going to be, that's what's going to tip the scale? I wish
2: I had a silver bullet answer for how we could solve this. Yes, I mean, I think that, in some ways, better understanding of the complex nature and the cumulative nature of bias can help. I think that it's tricky because I think the legal system is not necessarily the answer for every kind of problem like this. Because the laws, as one civil rights lawyer put it to me while I was researching this book, the laws create a floor for how bad things can get, but they don't necessarily inform people's everyday interactions with one another. You know, you can't really litigate someone's tone of voice or kind of minute, fleeting, unintentional, unexamined reaction to another person. So I'm not really sure if the law is the place to take this. Maybe it is.
1: Yeah, I I sort of feel like it's a combination of things, but certainly the law recognizing these systemic barriers would certainly, I feel like, go a long way. And certainly we would ideally have the most supposedly advanced minds (laughs) who are making law, the law of the land, have this understanding would be amazing, I feel like. But yes, you're right. It's the floor, not the ceiling. So there's a lot of, this has to come, we have to tackle this, I guess, from a lot of different angles. So let's talk about NormCorp. This is how I first came to find you because I saw an article talking about this particular experiment, I guess we would call it, piece of research, this simulation that you created in partnership with some computer scientists. So tell us about that. And then, you know, I might have some questions as we go to dig into it.
2: When I was doing the research, I found myself getting frustrated because when bias is explored from a scientific standpoint, it is looked at as expressed at one moment in time, kind of a snapshot. So a typical study to demonstrate the presence of bias might have identical resumes, one with a male name, one with a a female name. You show them to two different groups of people, and then you compare how people respond to the identical resume when it has a man's name or a woman's name. But that's just one moment in time. So we can say yes, there is bias at the moment of someone evaluating a resume or, you know, the moment of someone doing a performance evaluation or the moment of assigning an assignment. But in the real world bias is cumulative, repeated, and frequent. And what I couldn't find was an answer to the question that I really had, which is what is the cumulative impact of repeated experiences of bias and discrimination? And I mean, that I think is what was missing from these legal cases, because the jurors in the Ellen Powell case couldn't really make the leap between understanding that there were biases that Ellen Powell faced every day. And then the fact that ultimately it had a really extreme consequence. So what I did was I teamed up with a computer scientist to develop a simulation of a workplace. And we created something called an agent-based model, which is where you set up a kind of a simulated environment and then create agents, individual entities within that environment and give them a specific sets of rules to follow. And then you basically start the simulation and watch what happens as these agents interact with each other. So we created a workplace and it's a really simple workplace where it starts out with 50-50 men and women. There are eight levels of hierarchy. They do something very simple. They just do a project and then they either succeed or fail. And then They get a boost in their score, which determines how promotable they are. And then every so often, the people with the highest scores get boosted, get promoted to the next level. So what we did was we created this simulation, and then we introduced a handful of the most common gender biases that women face at work. We were looking at gender bias in particular. And we introduced just a very small amount of bias and then watched what happened over time.
1: So you chose five? well-established, well-researched biases that women face. So let's just talk briefly about what one of those ones was.
2: Yeah. So we looked at devaluation of women's performance. So devaluation of women's performance just means that when women and men perform equally, women, their work is seen as just slightly less valuable than equivalent work from men, that their work is kind of, the value their work is given is discounted somewhat. We included the fact that women are more penalized for errors. So there's research, for instance, that finds that when women surgeons have a bad outcome, it negatively affects their ability to get referrals much more than if a male surgeon has a negative outcome. We looked at credit, how credit is assigned. So there's research that shows that when men and women work together, On something, people assume that women didn't contribute as much, so they get less credit for the work. We looked at personality penalty, so women being penalized or seen as less likable for behavior that deviates from stereotypically feminine behavior, things like self-promotion, advocating for oneself, being seen as aggressive or assertive. And then we looked at what we called opportunity bias, which refers to the fact that, as Joan Williams has pointed out, women are... Evaluated often on the basis of past performance, whereas men are evaluated on the basis of potential for future performance. And so when high visibility assignments are handed out, they tend to be, you know, women are often overlooked for really big kind of stretch assignments or assignments that might move someone beyond their current skill set. Those were the five big biases that we factored into our simulation. So every time when we had a female agent, succeeded and a male agent succeeded, they both got a boost in their score, but the female agent got 3% less of a boost in their score. Or when the male agent and the female agent worked together on a project, sometimes we assign them together, the female agent would get 3% less of credit for working on that project than the male agent. So yeah, so every time someone was evaluated, we just sort of injected a little bit of gender bias into the way that they were evaluated. And so 3% doesn't sound like a lot. Right. Yeah, big deal. Work a little harder. Yes. We can overcome this. Yes. (laughs) But then what, what happened? So we found that when we looked at those five biases, that over time, over 20 promotion cycles, We ended up with a workplace where the top tier, the highest level, was 82% men. So the frequency, it was really the frequency of these small amounts of bias that resulted in this huge stratification. And then we actually added one more kind of bias, which is the fact that as the gender disparity increases, stereotyping against women also increases. So we added that once the disparity was above a certain point, we bumped up the bias from three to, I think, 4% or three to 5%. And then when we did that, then we ended up with a top tier of the workplace that was 87% men.
1: Which is pretty much reflected in the real world.
2: It is. Right? Yeah. We, we, oh, it was pretty interesting. What do you know? How yeah. fascinating. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because what we know is at about the age of 40, women's... Careers tend to plateau. Men's don't plateau till about the age of 55. That's 15 years of your highest income earning years as well. And the further we go up the ranks, fewer and fewer women that we see. So that's just there. We know that to be true. And this is maybe some helpful insight into why that's happening. Because what else would it be? This is what I find. This is what I get really annoyed by. And Justice Antonin Scalia's comments, like, I'm getting irked because what else would it be? The onus of proof, it seems to be so disproportionately on the marginalized groups. And otherwise, what is it? It's just women or like, what is their point of view that?
2: I mean, I think Scalia kind of mused in the opinion that he gave that maybe there were different qualifications Maybe there were different, right, women were less qualified, had less credential, had fewer credentials. Something else I hear is, uh, well, maybe women just aren't as ambitious. They're not as competitive. To which I say, have you seen a women's Olympic sports team? I don't think that women suffer a deficit of competitiveness (laughs) or ambition, but I think people look for... No one really likes to think that bias and discrimination are endemic.
1: I want to go to this idea of meritocracy, but anything else about this experiment that we should know or that we didn't cover?
2: I think one thing, just something else that I want to mention is that it's important to bring an intersectional analysis to this as well. And to acknowledge that women from different groups are going to experience, do experience gender bias in different ways. And there's a lot of really interesting research about that as well. For instance, Black women face more harassment at work than any other group. They report higher rates of exclusion than any other group of women or men. There are also studies that show that Black women are not perceived as negatively for displaying dominant behavior as white women. And there is also research that for Asian women may face the most penalty for behaving in assertive or self-promoting ways. So there are differences, you know, these biases may be dialed up or dialed down for women of different groups. And we haven't even talked about age or disability or religion or all these other groups. So I guess I just want to be careful that we're not making a blanket statement that women all face identical biases. That's not true. But these biases are present in some way, I think, for women, no matter what group they're in. Right. And thank you for saying that. And I think that
1: points us to that it could be worse than even your experiment (laughs) for many, many women, depending on the intersectionality of these other factors like race, obviously, and ethnicity being a significant one, that there's other factors compounding that could make this even more significant than it already is, which is really significant to see that type of change over the course of whatever it was. I guess that simulation roughly mirrored like a 20, a 10 year sort of span in a company. So what do you think then of people who, organizations and leaders who claim, well, we operate based on merit and we get this argument, right? And we hire and promote people based on merit. Bottom line.
2: I mean, Yeah, I think everyone thinks that they're less biased than everybody else, right? So, but there's research that shows that actually believing in one's own objectivity can itself be a predictor of more discriminatory behavior. So what I would say to a leader who says, oh, we're not biased, we never discriminate, is I would just encourage them to think again and be open to the idea that we are all susceptible to behaving in ways that conflict with our values. And I would particularly point them to research about homophily. This is something that is really endemic in the workplace. Homophily means literally love of the same. And this describes the phenomenon so frequently encountered, which is that people favor and promote and encourage others who are a lot like themselves. We see this in the workplace all the time. Someone getting a sort of special dispensation because the boss sort of sees themselves in this person or someone gets, is hired. Maybe they're not quite as qualified, but the boss recognizes themselves in this person and they, they're kind of like moved along. So I would say to a leader, don't take this personally, but your company is in some ways expressing bias. It's not a matter of if, but how and where. And if you really want the company to be a place where everyone can thrive, where everyone is able to do their work and be their best selves at work, then it's important to systematically identify places where bias might be rearing its head.
1: Do you think meritocracy really even exists though? I mean, if we had a meritocracy, we would have in most professions, we would have equal representation, wouldn't we?
2: Does meritocracy exist? No. I mean, the way that the current workplaces are set up, no. Our society is also not meritocratic. Yeah. I mean, meritocracy is its own topic. Concept itself was a satirical concept when it was introduced. So yeah. And I mean, what kind of hard to define even what is merit? How do you describe it? How do you define it? And who benefits from those definitions? So yeah, I mean, I think we would obviously see a society that's much less stratified if we had a truly meritocratic society, which we don't have. Okay,
1: so let's talk about some possible solutions because the book is also hopeful, right? And we want to think about, okay, ways to move forward, both on an individual level and on a more stomach level. And this is, this is a debate that I always have internally in my own mind and sometimes with other people, because that's part of what I grapple with is it's an individual thing. Individuals need to do their own work. They need to work on their self-awareness, their emotional intelligence. Certainly we would hope that leaders are working on this. I think that the future of leadership development is exactly just that. It's just working on those things. But there's also these broader systemic issues that need to be addressed. So what have you concluded from all of this research is the best approach as I'll say more than one, I'm sure, yeah, and are there different solutions, you know, depending on you know is it individuals, is it the system?
2: Yes, the reason that I wrote this book was really to answer that question, like how do we solve this problem, and there are a lot of approaches that have good evidence behind them that show changes as a result and I mean, I can talk about some of them. Some of them include things like creating really clear, objective, and transparent criteria for making everyday business decisions, whether that's hiring, making promotion decisions, the decisions that go into assigning high profile projects, making sure that those criteria are really consistent and objective and that everybody knows what they are is an extremely helpful way to combat bias. They say sunlight is the best disinfectant. If everybody actually knows how you get from point A to point B and what the criteria are, then there's sort of like fewer places to hide for bias and discrimination.
1: Transparency comes up all the time in businesses that transparency is something people are looking for. It's something they want in leaders, they want it in the decision-making. It's hugely important.
2: And it's surprising how rare it is for someone to actually have access to the criteria that are being used to evaluate them for a promotion. It's actually less common than you would than you would think to have that access to that transparency. Yeah, so objectivity and transparency are really important. But one conclusion that I came to looking at a bunch of case studies and looking at examples of how change happens was really that ultimately it's the mindset of the leaders that is the most significant predictor. One of the companies that I profiled was a French law firm that ended up achieving a balance in equity partners of 50% women, which is unheard of. In the United States, it's like 18% of equity partners are women, so 50%. And the reason was that the CEO of this organization really understood that it was essential to the functioning of the organization and the success of the organization that everyone be treated fairly, given equal access, given opportunities to develop and advance. And it wasn't seen as an act of sort of noblesse oblige on his part. It was really seen as a business imperative. And as a result, he put in place exactly what we're talking about, transparency, objectivity. He ended up doing a lot of mentorship and sponsorship of women himself. He gave women the opportunity to go back to their previous position if they didn't like the new promotion. So he minimized the risk for them. He was really motivated to do all of the things necessary to create a better environment for women to be able to be just as successful as men. And so it really came from the top. And I think that's kind of the secret sauce. That's a level of wisdom and understanding that you can't legislate, but is I think the main determinant of whether these approaches are implemented and whether they ultimately are successful. That is encouraging
1: and discouraging at the same time because affecting the mindsets of leaders is something that's challenging to do, especially when we were, people have been promoted and gotten into those leadership roles for the kinds of behaviors that we're trying to now stop. So let's just talk a little bit about the role that mindfulness and meditation have played in what you've seen in your research?
2: One of the risk factors for acting in a biased way is cognitive load. The amount of sort of strain on one's mind can influence how likely a person is to apply stereotypes. And so what mindfulness meditation can do is decrease some of that cognitive load and create space for reflection, for a pause. So instead of being so immediately reactive to what we see or to who we see, we can start to slow down, observe our own mind, and choose, really express agency in how we're going to react to another person. The kind of case study that I chose in order to look at mindfulness and meditation was a group of police officers In Oregon who have identified it as a way to combat aggression in police. And there are some early promising studies that have found that after an eight-week course of consistent meditation, they see things like less aggression, less emotional dysregulation, better sleep, fewer angry outbursts. In general, it seems to Create a level of resilience in police officers that then trickles down into the community they serve and allows them to interact in a more just, fair, and life affirming way with the community. But as you pointed out, I mean, one of the things that I did was go to one of these retreats where officers are taught these skills. And there was a lot of resistance. Some officers were open to it, and some really could not countenance, the idea that there was something wrong with them, that they had become dehumanized, really, which is, I think, what happens in in the policing profession. And, you know, one of them said, I think if you need this, you're weak. I'm fine. I'm happy. You know, leave us alone was a lot of what was expressed at that retreat. So I think it showed me that there are approaches that can actually work. But the question is, how do you actually introduce them? In a way, how do you get them socialized? How do you bring them in? I mean, another big conclusion that I came to after the process of writing this book was that there are a lot of interventions that can work. There are a lot of approaches that do change behavior, but it's not as easy as just introducing an intervention and, and watching it do its magic. There's this question of socializing the intervention, bringing it into an organization in a way that creates buy-in, that allows people to get excited about it. And that requires having a well-respected person introduce the intervention, introduce the approach, introduce the program, having someone who's popular, who people look up to, who has a lot of status and clout. It's actually really complicated to make these kinds of changes, and it involves a lot of human level decision making and strategy. So among the police, I mean, I bring it up in the context of policing because among the police who had adopted this approach, what I found consistently was they said, so-and-so recommended it and I respected him. So I decided to give it a try. So I think when we talk about systemic solutions, we really have to keep that in mind. Like, how do we actually introduce these things in a way that creates buy-in, that creates kind of like a sustainable momentum so that there isn't backlash and resistance to approaches that can actually work and change people?
1: The word trust just came to mind for me. They have to have the trust. Yes. Yeah. They have to trust the source. Who is suggesting this? Do I trust that person?
2: And that's about relationships.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
2: It's not about laws. It's not about policy. It's about relationships. It also highlights for me that the need for
1: allies who are willing to take up the fight, so to speak. We need, I think, more allies that are willing to be well-informed about these issues and use their influence, their own power to help this movement move forward. Maybe part of what needs to happen is there needs to be a way to start identifying certain people to say, can you be a leader in this? We need more people to lead this.
2: It's really powerful. I mean, there's really interesting research that the psychologist Betsy Levy-Palak has done about kind of network effects and how popular individuals can have a really massive sort of ripple effect on the networks around them and the behavior of people around them. Because we're very influenced by norms. We're very influenced by what we see as being the popular and right thing to do when we see other people doing something that influences what we decide to do. So if people who are well-respected and popular are behaving in a certain way, it can have a really big impact on an entire community around them.
1: There's something in our brains that wants that psychological safety or something of if that person's doing it, it must be okay, I guess. Right, yeah,
2: Yeah. social proof, exactly. Yeah, interesting. Which is, I think it also speaks to how important it is to speak up when you see something that's not right, when you see something that is a violation of standards and values to speak up because that also helps create a norm for everybody who's observing in the moment as well.
1: And I think that is shifting in the workplace. And it's been, certainly we see millennials doing more of speaking up in general, right? And they've been criticized extensively for it because they speak up about imbalance at work, projects they want and don't want. They advocate way more for themselves. And it troubles me actually the extent that they've been criticized for that because I think... I wish I was one of them. I wish I was raised to speak up for myself more. Some people will laugh when I say that and argue that I always do. However, I feel like I've bitten my tongue a lot along the way as well. And so I think the workplaces are really shifting and more people are starting to think sort of strategically about, okay, if I want to bring up an issue, how can I do that? What's the most politically savvy way to do that? How can I pull in some allies And so I think it's going to be really incumbent on leaders to really start to prepare themselves for this onslaught of change. And people are becoming much more particular about where they work and what they want out of the experience of their work, as is evidenced by this new term that's been coined, the great resignation that we're seeing, maybe more so in the US, but also here in Canada. Just people are reevaluating work. And I think that Issues related to diversity, equality, inclusion are almost central to that, I would argue.
2: Yeah, I agree. Anything else you think leaders should know before we wrap? There's a huge amount to gain by making sure that everyone has access to a fair and unbiased workplace. Workers are more engaged, people can do their jobs, there's more trust, there's less turnover there's really nothing to lose but your chains. I'd say (laughs) there's just a huge amount of advantage and a lot of really exciting opportunities to create more inclusive workplaces.
1: I 100% agree with that because we've been missing out on so much of what people could offer. Anyway, Jessica, I can't thank you enough for doing this. The book is amazing. I wish you all the best of luck with it. And yeah, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you today about this.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed talking to you too. Well, that was a rich conversation.
0: And I was really captivated in the conversation you were having with Jessica around the storytelling, right? So there's data and then there's the stories. And the first one, when she's talking about this nuclear scientist Ben Barris who experienced in the same lifetime and in the same body but in different genders the difference in treatment the difference in appreciation that people had for her and then his work i mean to me that's a real incredible example of how bias manifests itself regardless of like it's the same brain and yet The physical body has such powerful, it filters or communicates so strongly beyond the work that the person does. I thought that was a really powerful example to kick things off. Where I was really interested in what Jessica was talking about was, and I talk about the storytelling, but how in particular, it's the repetitive, continuous, small acts of bias and of either lack of visibility, this erosion over time. It's not these big acts of very concrete discrimination, but these ways of people interact with one another that might even be invisible to us, those of us on the receiving end, but that have this incredible impact over the course of our lives on the quality of our lives. And as you and I talk about the way we experience our careers, tell me, Deborah, when you were talking with Jessica,
1: What really stood out for you? It really just made me think about from the moment a baby is born. And now, again, a lot of this might be subconscious, unconscious, unintentional. But everyone in that child's life and everyone in our society, for the most part, treats boys and girls differently. From the moment we arrive, depending on what's between our legs, we start experiencing the world a little bit differently. And what kind of hairstyle is appropriate? What kind of clothes are appropriate? What kind of activities might be appropriate? What colors am I allowed to wear? What colors put me at risk of being teased? All of these things. Is it any wonder, really, that by the time we get to adulthood, we already have very well-formed ideas about the package that someone shows up in and therefore what their capabilities might be, what their interests might be. And what are those rules based on? Just a bunch of arbitrary, stupid things, really, if you really think about it. Yes. And one of the things that has
0: always intrigued me, and especially when you look at some of Jessica's data that came out of the simulation, was when women and men are evaluated for promotions that it's women's past experience that is looked at as the determination of whether or not she should be allowed to take on a bigger assignment versus for men the data shows that they're looked at as what's their opportunity to grow so even in when we're we're looking at two qualified candidates just by virtue of the difference between men and women, as you say, in the form that that we show up in, that as much as we would like to believe that we neutrally assess people for their skills and their contributions, the biases are built into absolutely everything we do. And here's an interesting thing. You know, bias doesn't necessarily need to be bad. It is bad a lot of the time, but we can have positive biases as well. But where I think we get into trouble is when the particular bias has views one person or a representation of a group more favorably and acts in a way that is unfair to another group. So that's where bias, I think, is really shows its true colors in terms of its negative impact on people's lives. And this, I don't, I didn't read in Jessica's book, but I recall reading a piece of research a few years back that when you looked at the quality of feedback that women receive in the workplace, it's more often about who they are, like their personalities and men receive feedback that is really more about how they do something that's actionable, that they can change it. So for instance, a woman might be called aggressive. Right. So, as opposed to maybe Lisa, there are some times in which your tone conveys an anger that you might not be aware of. That's feedback I can act on. But if I'm told, Lisa, you're just too aggressive, what do I do with that? And so, women typically are on the receiving end of biased feedback over the course of their careers as well. There are
1: just so many things to dig into here. Where would you like to take this? So, it's interesting that that one piece that you just brought up, because she talked a little bit about how race then. Intersects with some of these biases towards women. And so, for example, how aggression from Black women is more tolerated, isn't regarded as negatively, but not true for Asian women. For Asian women, it's even worse. One of the things that struck me is that how we could be really be biased on anything that we think causes separation. You're a blue eyed person and I'm a brown eyed person. And that might be something that we could find separateness in. But we really, I think, need people to come to a point where instead of jumping to defensiveness, we could just say, hey, you know what? This is natural this is everywhere. It's not necessarily serving us and we can do better. We know that we're capable of better. And there's lots of examples in her book where people did do better, but it's about growing in awareness. And she talked a lot about the mindfulness piece. She had some specific examples of that, but a lot of it is I'm borrowing it, or I'm, I guess I'm relating it to mindfulness and meditation, that observer's mind, that little break, that just taking that small break when you catch yourself possibly making an assumption and just taking that moment and creating that space to think, okay, wait a minute here, is this this accurate? What assumptions might I be making? Is there another way to think about this? And just being open-minded and open-hearted about that. And this is also where mindfulness practice can play a huge role is being self-compassionate, self-aware and self-compassionate to say, oh, I kind of f-ed there. Okay. And what do we do when we screw up? Do we run away from it? Do we get defensive or do we lean into it and say, I'm sorry, I screwed up. And that's okay. Cause I'm human. It's not my intention. I'm going to try to do better And maybe you can help me. Lisa, tell me more about being raised as a blue-eyed person. Like, let's have some humility and humbleness and just we're going to make mistakes without being afraid of being canceled. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. The raison
0: d'etre for this book and other people who work and gather this data and study these things... And Jessica sums it up so beautifully, is that the reason we want to understand bias and dismantle it, and she writes, quote, because it robs fields of talent. It robs companies of ideas, it robs cultures of progress. Where are the breakthroughs in science that we need and art and literature, wisdom and politics? You know, if we only have a small group that are allowed on our planet to express their thoughts and feelings and to create the artifacts of our culture we are not allowing for the broad depth and breadth of, first of all, the human experience and human potential, but we're also not tapping into the knowledge and wisdom that we need to solve the serious problems that you and I keep coming back to around the environment, around our communities might be, you know, breaking down along divisive lines. You and I often bring a personal anecdote into when we're having these conversations. I remember This was going kind of a little bit back in my life where I had thought that because I grew up, and I might have mentioned this before, because I grew up English-speaking in the province of Quebec in Canada, that I understood what it meant to be discriminated against because I was different. First of all, physically, I'm taller. My parents are German. I have facial bone structure, looks more European, blonde, blue eyed. And also when I did speak French, I at the time spoke with an accent. And I thought this gave me plenty of personal data and information around what it meant to be discriminated against. And I was completely blind to what it meant for people of color what it meant for people of religions that were not Christian. And it was, I have to say, a bit of a painful awakening to be have in my face so clearly that my experience of feeling discriminated against or having lived with some bias was one of many different types of bias that people can experience, and maybe not as traumatic as other kinds of bias that women of color might experience, transgender people might experience, people with disabilities When you talk about that mindfulness piece, part of it is to let go of the tightness around our own narrative and to allow that, yes, our story exists, and yes, we experienced what we have experienced, and yes, it's had an impact on us, but to go beyond that, as you say, right? To stretch into, to lead into a world in which bias has some very painful and beyond traumatic, like people are killed because of biases, people are withheld from all kinds of opportunities in life because of biases. And I guess what makes me hopeful in all of this is that part of what Jessica has discovered in the course of doing this work is that biases are learned and anything that is learned with time and effort can be unlearned. We can unravel what got us into some of these places but it's not an easy process. And as you say, it it does take some personal as well as systemic work.
1: On the personal work part of it, I think what has not been largely talked about, but I think plays a role, is that there is a grieving process that we need to appreciate and understand that coming into acceptance that we live in a society that has prejudice, that treats people very differently and has sometimes horrible outcomes. And what's coming to mind for me, and and you might be able to speak to this with a little bit more astuteness because you usually do, (laughs) but reminded of this past year in Canada, the bodies of over 200 Indigenous children were found on the sites of, and this is where I, I might forget some of the facts and you might remember them more than I do, but over, I think it was 230 children in the beginning. And since it's been more and more on the sites of residential schools. And that came at a time when we've had almost a two-year period of a number of significant events in the United States and in Canada that have really shone a light on parts of our history that we have to reckon with. And The roots of this are in bias. And coming to terms with that as a white person, I guess, (laughs) is that you have to grieve. And that's not to say that I should take on shame about it, but at the same time, there is a grieving of what I thought this country was. Oh, I'm going to get emotional about it. Uh, Yeah. It's facing the truth of something can be really hard and painful. And it's just part of the process, though, you know, being emotional is the most appropriate
0: response. You know, when I think of promises that governments, including our Canadian government, has made around reconciliation that have fallen through, as you say, like there's being blind when we don't know, right? So we just don't know. And so we're, we're blind and ignorant. But when we know and we still choose to not act. And I think that's the invitation in this book, The End of Bias, to say it's a beginning. Like we are at the beginning of starting to process the pain of the effects of all of this bias. There's these lighter versions of bias versus what, as you describe what happened in residential schools in Canada with Indigenous children. Like we are talking about acts that are deplorable. The word tragic, doesn't it come anywhere near it? So the effects of bias are maybe subtle in some cases, but we, as a society, are all a part of coming to terms with the fact that human beings don't often treat other human beings very well when there's a difference between them, and one is is perceived to be lesser than. I mean, what i I was reading something recently about an indigenous writer was saying so interesting, this idea of being called savages. That there was something about us that was unruly and that needed to be tamed versus the freedom that we had to live on the planet, to live with the elements, to live with the animals, to be in relationship, and to have that just by a word, like the word savage, be taken away from us. And there's examples of this all over the world, right? And and we use language as a way to anchor bias. I sometimes find myself struggling over what word should I be using because I'll know that a particular word is out of favor, but we're like, we used to say Aboriginal, now we say Indigenous and there are many other instances of that. And I think, you know, sometimes people are afraid to talk about their own biases because they're afraid of being revealed for not having the right language or not saying it in the right way. And, you know, I've heard you say, you know, we need to bring a bit of grace to these conversations Around releasing ourselves from having to get it right as we're learning, all of us in some way to dismantle these systems and these mindsets of bias that are really preventing us from capturing and surfacing and building on the wisdom that we have as a race that's been around for quite some time.
1: Yeah, I think a little grace goes a long way, that's for sure. And the point I would emphasize there is we're all just figuring this out in real time. Flying by the seat of our pants, but hopefully with the intention to be aware, awake, observant, curious, and the intention just to do better. When you reflect on the
0: conversation and on the reading that you've done, where do you see people, either like you and I or our listeners, being able to do something differently so that we are breaking this unconscious bias that we, you know, even with the best of intentions? bring into our interactions with people who are different from us?
1: Yeah, I think a couple of things come to mind. One is just stretching ourselves to be that bit more open-minded and open-hearted and curious about people and about their backgrounds and their situations and their upbringing and to catch ourselves. I think mindfulness practices, I'm a meditator, I'm a firm believer in the value of that. I think that goes a long, long way in Understanding that value of that observer's mind, questioning our thoughts, knowing that we are actually not our thoughts, (laughs) that there is a being behind that. We are all human beings after all. Questioning the idea of separateness, because I think an important part of our evolution moving forward, whether it's in businesses and workplaces or just in general as a society, is recognizing that we're all really interdependent on one another. And whether we like it or not, we are now a global society, and living sustainably on our planet is going to really require a recognition that we're part of the same ecosystem. And so, I think dismantling this idea of separateness and looking for ways in which we have things in common, and recognizing that sometimes differences can be lovely, we can learn from one another, and sometimes differences are hard. We need to find a way to speak to one another with compassion and respect and appreciation for some of those differences. And we need to be able to resolve our conflicts and differences in a way that is civil. We have a lot of uncivil behavior going on and it's concerning actually to me. It's deeply concerning the degree of incivility, is that the word, that we see happening. And stuff that you think about that you learned in kindergarten or that hopefully your parents taught you is that you have to learn to disagree and to resolve your differences in a way that doesn't involve resorting to being mean and bullying and sometimes violent. And I think just really leaning into conversations in a respectful way. And I think, again, just being led by that curiosity and non-judgment is really important. And that's all the self-work. That's just self-work that we really need to encourage people to do. And especially leaders, because the one thing that struck me at the end of our conversation, Jessica and I is, you know, I said, so what, you know, what is the thing? And she said, the biggest thing is leaders mindset. And I was both somewhat vindicated when she said that, because I thought, Well, yeah, that's what you and I've been talking about for a long time. But also I was a little bit discouraged by it because if we're relying on the mindset of leaders, then we need to really think about who gets into leadership. And this is where organizations have a huge, important role to play is really evaluating what do we need in leaders right now? And we need leaders who can have that level of humility and are willing to go to be vulnerable and to do that self work that needs to be done because you have to be open to your own personal growth and development if you're not open to that then i guess you're just assuming you already have all the answers and i don't think we do we certainly don't
0: have all the answers and we've undergone a very a massive shift in what we consider to be work yes we still have work that needs to be done with people's hands but when we talk about knowledge workers If you're working with human being brains, and this requires, I mean, it requires of all leaders to treat all employees with tact and respect, but particularly when we're talking about people who do work in offices, who are doing productive, creative kinds of work. We really need to bring a relational component to it that is not about the boss being right, but it's about what are the conditions that we all need to co-create in order to bring about the kinds of work that needs to happen. The one thing that I, you know, you were just talking a moment about the leaders doing their individual work. I mean, we all need to be doing that, but I agree if we're going to be putting people in positions of leadership It behooves us to put people in there who are not just hired for their incredible technical skills or for their ability to be great in an interview, or if they've been on the receiving end of 3% more favorable bias over the course of their career. Like we really need to look at what is the world we're trying to create and who's going to help us get there. And one of the things that struck me that Jessica touched on was when she said, yes, like working across difference and increased diversity can bring up more conflict. But we can't allow our our discomfort with conflict to prevent us from creating environments for all kinds of different people to do really great work together. There's a risk in keeping up with the homogeneous ways of thinking and of bringing people together. And if we get along better, that's fine. It doesn't spark the creativity and the innovation that we need then I don't think there's any case to be made for let's keep the same people in the positions of power with the ways we've been developing them. This needs a wholesale rethinking and frankly, a bit of a revolution.
2: Well, that
1: says it all. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the revolution. All right, until next time. Thanks for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and give us a review. And follow the Work Revolution podcast on Instagram for more great content and updates about our work. In addition to two full episodes a
0: month, we have a monthly Ask Us Anything where we answer your questions about leadership, career maneuvering and whatever workplace challenges you're facing. Submit your questions to our website at WorkRevolutionPodcast.com where you'll find
1: all our episodes as well as learn more about who we are. Thanks to Bernie at Blue Eye Music for our music theme and to the team at Poditize for production support. Until next time.